Hi-ho, this is Jordan, and this is Year 2000 Fix, the retrospective podcast that analyzes news, pop culture, and trends of the 21st century. You're about to hear the oddest podcast I've produced so far. Last week, Alyssa and I had a lot of fun talking about movies that are so bad, they're good. So we decided to do a follow-up on songs that are so bad, they're good. It's been nearly 10 years since the release of Friday by Rebecca Black. When it comes to songs that are so bad, they're, well, not good, they're almost tolerable. You can't do much better than Friday. I wanted to be original in my approach to this topic and not just say, this song is bad, remember that. My initial idea for this podcast was to explore how Friday actually paved the way for modern-day digital media trends and how Friday was the last true viral video of the 2010s. I scrapped this idea, though, after I consulted with my brother Dylan, a person who discusses digital media trends weekly in his podcast Tube Circuit. It only took a few minutes with Dylan for both of us to realize, I don't know jack about digital media trends, and worse, my research was just plain wrong. Dylan may have been brusque in his critiques, but I know in his heart of hearts, he was just trying to prevent me from turning into Steve Buscemi's character in 30 Rock. I'm not even sure I know what the phrase viral video even means anymore, but you'll still hear Alyssa and I attempt to loosely define the term. Ultimately, Alyssa and I decided to stay in our lane. Instead of making incorrect assessments about what the fellow kids listen to, you'll hear us discuss what stood out to us about the song Friday and our take on other music that the internet has immortalized as the worst. Then, because we didn't feel we had much of an episode with just that, we improvised a conversation centered on our love of early 2000s Nickelodeon. That just sort of happened. Jump to the 25-minute mark if you want to hear just the stuff about Nickelodeon. One more note, though I probably could get away with playing a snippet of the song Friday under the guise of fair use, I'm going to still spare your ears. We all know the song, and we don't need to hear it ever again. If you didn't already know the lyrics by heart, you weren't alive in 2011. That's why, unless you're still deciding whether to kick it in the front seat or sit in the back seat, I'm just going to play my standard theme here and give you your Year 2000 Fix. When we use the term viral, it's a shorthand, maybe even incorrect way of just referring to some piece of content that has the attention of hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people, and is part of a large conversation and captures a wide audience. Yeah, well, I think maybe the definition of a viral video has changed in the last decade, where a viral video back in the 2000s, it was something that everybody you knew was talking about, whether that was your parents, your friends, your teachers, your extended family. But now a viral video can be considered viral with a much smaller subgroup of people. But I think it ultimately comes down to like a high amount of engagement within a certain application or platform. So a lot of comments, a lot of shares and likes, as well as the ability to reference it to your group of people that you talk to and that they would know that reference. Alyssa, do you remember where you were in 2011 when you heard Friday by Rebecca Black? I do. It was in my Spanish class on a Friday, and my teacher, we called him Profe, he put it on, and he was dancing, and all of the guys started freaking out and going, oh, what is that song, man? You have to turn that off. And from then on, he played it every Friday until the end of the semester. 
I think just further cementing the point that this song was inescapable. Yes, it was like a force of nature. You couldn't get away from it. Do you remember seeing, I think it was Kohl's, like actually used it as a jingle for their Black Friday sales? And then you realize you were screwed. (laughs) (laughs) You can't get away from this now. It's gone mainstream. You know what I really want to just say first is we talked about The Room, Tommy Wiseau, how the dialogue people speak, it kind of sounds like something people would say, but it's so alien and there's such a weird thinking process behind it. And I think a lot of the songs, Friday and then anything else you saw from Arc Music Factory, which became popular once Friday did, it's kind of that same thing where it's like, did they think these were real lyrics? Did they think the pieces of the song were really going to sound coherent? It almost like masquerades as a pop song, you know, like it's almost a pop song, but there's just something kind of off about the lyrics that makes you pull back and go, "Mm, this sounds like a parody almost, but it's not. It's kind of confusing. I heard the same thing from people who are like, this is just like a parody of itself. And kind of in the same way it resembles a pop song, but it's not. It's like the same way you'd say The Room is a movie with a budget and cameras and people acting, but it's somehow not a movie. Yeah, and I think it goes back to the guy who wrote it more than Rebecca Black, the singer. Uh, It's Patrice Wilson, right? He's a weird guy, too. He has an interesting backstory. He gets his break doing music with a famed Slovakian musician, Ibrahim Maiga, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And that was just by chance. And then he decides to come to America. He goes to LA and to really make it, he makes his own music label. He kind of sees the only way he's going to stay afloat is if he's catering to people who are basically paying to play. Yeah, because I remember him writing songs not only for Rebecca, black but for other essentially little girls and little boys who wanted to be pop stars like i think another one was allison gold she sang a song written by him it was called chinese food i think it went viral as well it's like 19 million views on youtube yeah but by that point wasn't it like they were in the game of oh we know what we are now and what's gonna get clicks versus say back when they were doing Friday, when people were like, hey, what else does this company do? And you see butterflies and you're just as equally bemused. Yeah, I think at that point, they'd kind of found their stride in what kind of market they were going to cater to. It's such an interesting thing people were paying for. You would get them to write a song for you. I think there was a way you could negotiate the rights to the song, depending on like how much you were paying or like, what you were putting up front, and then they take photos, they shoot a music video, they do a little bit of promotion, but prior to 2011, their whole thing was like, yeah, we can't make you famous. You're just doing this for fun, and Rebecca Black certainly thought, like, that's all I'm doing here. Yeah, do you want to go into, like, the history of the song, um, Friday? Might as well. (laughs) Yeah, just for some context. Yeah, yeah, Rebecca Black is about 13, around the time she hears a friend who had done a similar experience she asked her mother can we please do this and she was surprised that she had her parents blessing to even though it was like some money I think she was paying like somewhere between two thousand to four thousand dollars to get this whole package of photos of recording producing a song and a little bit of promotion and then as far as shooting the video They just shot it in front of her dad's house. She said, like, rather than using just paid professional extras, 
they just got her friends to be in the video. They wanted a school bus, but they could only afford a convertible. An anonymous source has confirmed that there was a person in the video who claimed not to be very close friends with Rebecca Black at all, but they were still recruited to be an extra and they were very surprised to see that when you see like the shots of the car driving and them awkwardly dancing or like moving their arms that became like a gif or like a meme just because of how odd and out of place it looked well it's funny because like watching that video again now it reminds me of the kinds of videos that my friends and i would shoot with like a little camcorder and then play on our old family pc but it's like a little bit better quality and it just took off as an actual music video. It's kind of fascinating to watch. That's the funny thing. We kind of had a similar observation with Birdemic, which is that our iMovie middle school editing projects kind of had some more creative and professional look to it than what you see in the finished product. It's really not that hard these days to do what they do in like the Friday music video, so long as you have a few bucks, which kind of makes it all the more funny. It looks the way it does. Absolutely. I don't know if you can argue that that $4,000 was well spent (laughs) when you consider the eventual fallout that Rebecca Black experienced afterwards. And and I just really want to break down your individual reactions to each part of the song. (laughs) Okay. Because first you're just hearing like the kind of autotune vocals of her singing. The lyrics just sound so generic as she's talking about getting up and eating cereal. That it's about like whether she's going to be in the front seat or the back seat. And then there's something about the chorus that just really sticks in your head. But that is far from the last time you're going to be shocked watching the video. I'm just like really trying to zone in to that 2011 mindset uh, when everyone was sharing it. Yeah, I just I I'm, I just pulled up the lyrics and I'm rereading them. And it, it's amazing how that chorus just gets stuck in your head for days. I think everyone agrees the best part is then when the guy who wrote the song just starts rapping in it. Oh yeah, it's like a really good emotional climax. <laughs> well, I think he actually has like a small cameo in almost every song that he wrote for Ark. It's sort of like how people would complain that P. Diddy was always in his artist videos. <laughs> he just couldn't help himself. I think people of all ages just really took a liking. Liking is not the right word because... No, it was almost like a disliking. This is what's really hard to break down. Those movies we talked about, there are people who are like, oh, I love watching it, it's great, and I certainly enjoy just watching the movies for research and laughing at the ridiculous parts, and I can totally go back into it and recommend it to people, whereas you see a video like this, it's definitely a level of genuine not good, but I'm so hesitant to say it's so bad it's good, because it's not that either. That's the thing. I don't know a single person that liked it, ironically or unironically. I think anybody you talk to now wouldn't say that it's so bad it's good, but I I don't think anyone would say that it deserved the hate that it got either. There have always been, for decades, so long as modern music has been what it's been, people who criticize bad songs, who pick at lyrics, but 
it's really tragic that you get examples like this where I couldn't really name anyone who's more vulnerable or defenseless. If we're thinking back to 13-year-old Rebecca Black in 2011, who she just had a song. She didn't intend for it to be a viral mega hit. I cannot imagine as a 13-year-old girl how horrified I would have been to suddenly go viral and then have that awkward period of time in my life encapsulated on the internet forever for anybody to see. That is mortifying. So what do you think about this song made it go viral? What we know made it viral was like a few high-profile Twitter posts and on the Tosh.0 blog there being a title of songwriting isn't for everyone. So that explains where all the traffic was coming from. People really just took pleasure in knowing like wow this girl is singing one of the worst songs ever made. Well, I also think it's just one of those unfortunate things that once you put something out into the internet, it's there for the whole world to see and to critique. And because of that anonymity that people have on the internet, they feel like they can say anything. The difference between hating on songs before the internet and then with the internet was I think people's comments were kind of more centralized. You're just talking to other people. Like you have no shot at like actually getting close to the people who made the song. I mean, I guess the closest would be I had a teacher who really hated Journey when he was a teenager and he knew where Steve Perry would drive home and he and his friends would pelt his car and scream, Journey sucks. Oh my God, <laughs> that sucks. If he had been around in the internet, if like Journey was like this hot young band of the 2000s, he would have just said something cruel online and then that would have just been in a sea of hurtful comments. Yeah, he probably would have just trash talked them in the comments. Yeah, because there's no way Steve Perry can get to each of those individually. <laughs> I think before there were big viral internet trends that you could see every time that you opened up your little phone screen. It was a lot harder to find people and communities to talk about those things with. So when you were having a negative association with a song or media, it was much more insular. And within your friend group or family or whoever you talked to, you didn't have that same outlet that you could go and express your opinions on. To be clear, I think you're allowed to not like a song and you can point out how weird or how unusual sounding something is I just think the real tragedy as I'm sure you would agree is that it was all centralized on the person themselves who it was clear right from the beginning had the least power in the situation Absolutely. I mean, there's a huge difference between disliking something and going on and harassing somebody. We talked about the So Bad They're Good movies, that there's like communities that form over. There's like the riff tracks, there's the How Did This Get Made podcast, there are people who will see live screenings of the bad movie just so they can kind of have the shared enjoyment with peers. And with songs, it's like harder to do that because a song is just a song, so it's like a fraction of the length of the movie. I think with a song, you know, it doesn't give you that ability to like riff off of it for the most part. Like with movies, there's those pauses where you're able to like make a funny comment or point out to your buddy like, hey, did you see that part that it was so stupid or like it didn't make sense or it was funny. But with a song, it's just a couple minutes. It's like a fraction of time and you're not able to do that. There, there's not as much, um, I guess, behind the scenes drama or anything that can really drive the conversation around it other than saying, eh, the song's not very good. <laughs> so how is Rebecca Black today? How did she fare through the storm? 
I really admire her. Like, she seems so rational, and you see what she sounds like now. She did, like, a BuzzFeed interview where she talked about what it was like, just going from one day wanting to do a song, and then the next day being in the spotlight in a way she never asked for. Her just talking about, like, the opportunity she got that she never would have expected, the obvious pitfalls, and, like, the fact that she was so isolated and friendless and didn't know who to trust. And I know she's done other music that isn't half bad. I wouldn't say it's, like, groundbreaking. I mean, I'm not gonna tell someone they shouldn't at least try. And I think it's to the point where the good news is a lot of people who may have posted mean comments back then, they're actually like, well hey, I was too harsh and I actually owe her an apology. And I'm sure those same people who thought negatively of the song back then, they would say something nice to her if they had the chance. That's a happy ending to the story. I mean, I feel like it could have gone a lot of different, much worse ways. And I guess that leads into like everything that we found that's so bad about the song Friday, we've seen in mainstream music anyways. So the fact that everyone was hating on it so hard is kind of silly in retrospect. I almost wonder if the collective outrage at a song like Friday is just like noticing worsening music trends. And this is like a completely meritless theory, but I'll just say like, okay, so for someone like me who when I was in high school listening to Friday and had that really snobbish mindset of like, oh, rock is the only real music or like screw what everyone else is listening to. <laughs> You're one of those guys. Well, the thing is, the rock genre took a really heavy hit in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, because you find the artists people are investing in are, like, Limp Bizkit, and there were some funny programs from VH1, like, called the Most Awesomely Bad Songs, and a lot of them are, like, 2000s rock songs, like, do you know Butterfly by Crazy Town? I'm so bad with the names. You know, Come My Lady, Come My Lady, You're My Butterfly. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, okay. Terrible, terrible song. Song, then I mean, okay, Nickelback. How do we reconcile that one? <laughs> <laughs> I used to like Nickelback, and then I was shocked when the internet decided that it, they were horrible and they turned them into a meme. But actually, I thought it was really funny that when you go on like Wikipedia and you look up worst songs ever list by the different decades, I feel like everybody will have a song on that list where they go, I didn't think that was a bad song, or I didn't think it deserves to be on the worst list. Like, don't worry, be happy. I really like that song or even Ice Ice Baby. I think it's so iconic. It symbolizes an era that I was shocked to see it on that list. Yeah, and you know what? I actually like what is arguably known as one of the worst songs ever made, which is We Built This City by Starship. Oh, really? That's a bad song. <laughs> you know, like how you're supposed to brush your teeth for like three to five minutes. If I don't have my music in my ears, I just think in my head, we built this city. <laughs> That's amazing. But I think it comes back to music is so subjective, right? Just like movies and me all media, really. There were some people who when Friday came out, they just felt like we'd been had. What was even going on in 2011 at that point? I mean, I think wasn't there like the very tragic Japanese tsunami? <laughs> I feel like we should have had our priorities in order. <laughs> <laughs> there were some big world events that were probably more important than this horrible song. That kind of makes me think about how nowadays, even if something goes viral, you know, it's not the same. It, it doesn't reach that point where every single person you know is talking about it. There are so many things going viral every single day that it's almost impossible to keep up with the current trends and what's changing. Yeah, my brother, when I consulted with him about social media, influencers, what makes something go viral, what's really popular right now, he made an observation. Where 
as before you had an older generation deciding this is important, this is viral, this is something that deserves the attention of print media and what's on television, like say it's featured on a morning show or is a bit in a late night comedy show. Now it's like there are no anomalies. You get this kind of content coming out all the time and where it used to be there's like one big viral video every few months or something. Now it's like no, there's like 10 to 20 of those a day. They're getting millions of views and perhaps the audience is fragmented but like that doesn't mean they're not important. Mm -hmm. I think a much younger generation is now deciding what's viral and what's not viral. Like instead of logging on to the internet and seeing what's viral by going onto like Comcast.net and seeing it pinned on the front page, you're just opening the app and whatever is being suggested to you because it's getting massive amounts of views is what's viral or current. That was the other thing with Friday is that like people theoretically could have been emailing each other links. That's like how long ago it was. And there really was only Facebook was the only social network. It said like so-and-so and 72 other people shared this link. So that's how I saw it. Yeah. And I'm thinking about how, like I said, my Spanish teacher was the person to show this to me and my dad knew about it. Like nowadays I feel like a viral video might not necessarily be known by someone who's older or someone who's not within your social circle. Yeah, and it's definitely not exclusive to a YouTube video either. The easiest example to pull is like the song Old Town Road is an actual good song made possible by promotion via TikTok and the artist using other facets of social media and the internet to push the song through. That definitely was not just like, oh, a guy put a song on YouTube and now it has a million hits and he's famous. Yeah, I feel like there's so many more avenues that things can become popular through. It's not just mainstream media. It's not just YouTube. It could be TikTok or all sorts of different applications that you can use. The easiest way for someone like myself to understand it is it's kind of like how, like there used to be just say three channels on TV, right? So people watching the same programs. Then it becomes three channels and then cable and like three channels plus HBO. And so then you get people finding other sources of like good entertainment. And then that just explodes probably in like the mid 2010s where you have like Netflix, they release orange is the new black and house of cards like straight to streaming with all the episodes intact and then suddenly the whole world has just opened up right there's such a like massive host of streamable content that's accessible to everyone 100% of the time, 24 hours a day, that it's hard to have just one viral video because you're just getting a barrage of different content constantly. Yeah, and I can list like, say, 10 really good shows on right now or from the past few years. And I guarantee that it's like a near impossible task to find someone who has also watched all 10 shows because it would require them to have access to the same channels, the same services, the sky the limit as far as how you're going to find them. Yeah, because I might be an avid user of TikTok or Netflix, and you might be an avid user of YouTube and HBO, and we would never even watch the same content. 
it that way, even though both of the things on there might be popular in their own respect. And I'm not even going to say that's a bad thing. It just is a thing. And it just shows that people's interests are catered to in a way that wasn't seen before. And that's what makes it really hard to keep up if you're not naturally attuned to this kind of stuff. Yeah, it makes me feel <laughs> makes me feel kind of old, actually, because we have all these shared experiences from the internet. Like I could give you a, a reference from the early 2000s, and you would probably know it because there was only one or two different platforms to view it on. Nowadays, I feel like we're not going to see that as much going forward. Yeah. And if you have the outdated view of what a viral video is, then you can say Friday. And I feel like you can even like list really, really old viral videos, like the very first YouTube video, right? Me at the zoo or the Lonely Island's Lazy Sunday. Or like Charlie bit my finger or something like that. (laughs) People can nod their heads at that. But then because of like the diversity and the different definition of what makes for popular content and how people are accessing it, it's less likely if you mention it that it's going to stick out in people's memories as the years go on. Yeah, I think like with our relatively newfound access to this massive host of streamable content and then the rapidly changing trends on it, it's created an environment where these like five minutes of fame don't really pervade the public consciousness in the same way. And like, I don't know if we'll ever see another song reach those same highs and lows that Friday did, like within our lifetimes. Well, I would say the songs that are reaching those highs, they're reaching those highs because people like the music. They're actively engaged. And I think what's kind of a stale bit is like, oh, this is a song people didn't really like or has that so bad it's good quality. And the other takeaway is we're old. (laughs) We're so old. I I just feel ancient talking about all of this and remembering all of the old viral videos. So I don't know. Maybe two dinosaurs don't know. (laughs) How many times do we have to teach you this lesson, old man? So what were your favorite Nickelodeon shows? Like, just name them rapid fire. Mm, okay, SpongeBob, obviously. Fairly Odd Parents. Drake and Josh, which actually I didn't like Drake and Josh when I first started watching it, but I think as my sense of humor developed as a kid, I started liking it more and more. And then by the time they got to iCarly, I loved iCarly. Uh, Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide, I believe it helped me survive middle school. Maybe unpopular opinion. I didn't like the adventures of Jimmy Neutron. I thought he was a total bitch. I hated him. That is an interesting take. It's a hot take. But I think out of all of them, Spongebob is probably the one that I still quote to this day and still really, like, actually the other day we lost power for a while at the house and therefore didn't have any internet. It's like, oh my god, what do you do without internet nowadays? But I had a couple episodes of Spongebob saved on my computer, so we were watching those. We're still, like, busting up and laughing. There is so much I can list right now that is still making me laugh. And I mean, I think the one that comes to mind is, do you remember the episode? where Spongebob tries to convince Squidward that Mr. Krabs is a robot. Oh my god, I love that one. (laughs) And he says a key feature of robots is that they can't cry. (laughs) Hey, Mr. Krabs! What? What is it, boy? Squidward's father never hugged him. Isn't that sad? (laughs) Yes, I suppose that is rather sad, but Squidward can hug himself during his break. 
I think that goes back to your point of some of these shows had the type of humor that would appeal to adults and children, and that's why they're so beloved. Looking back, I remember my dad loved that episode so much that he tried to find the song. You know, the whole reason they think Mr. Krabs is the robot is because there's that song that he's like grooving out to, and it's like a little techno beat, bee boo boo bop or whatever. No, man, you're thinking of bee boo boo bop, boo boo bop. My dad thought it was such a funny episode. He tried to find that song so he could play it in the car when we went places. Like, it really appealed to adults and children. But I think a lot of Nickelodeon shows at the time did. And now you don't see that so much. I think shows are made to appeal to very specific groups of people and demographics. Yeah, there's something to be said about the way SpongeBob's humor reached people. I have a distinct memory of my dad laughing at the classic Band Geeks episode. You remember that one, right? It's like one of the greatest. Oh, yeah. Where, like, they go and play at the Super Bowl? The Bubble Bowl. The bubble bowl. Oh, I'm so sorry. My dad just snorted out loud laughing when SpongeBob's call to action is Squidward always helped us whenever it was convenient for him. <laughs> uh, the jokes are so well-timed and just they're rapid fire. And as a kid, you don't even get half of them. But watching it again, it appeals to adults just as much as kids. It's amazing. What was like your first show that you actually watched on Nickelodeon? Because I think it's interesting to see how they have evolved from being pretty adult when you go back and look at some of the jokes to more appealing to kids or teenagers. My earliest memory, I might have even been in Finland with my parents. I would have been like two or three years old and seeing a dub of the Rugrats and going, I like that red haired kid. And then I think I had this cousin, the one I recorded the OC podcast with. She was really into these shows, so then she'd tell me what channel it was. And so then I'd find it, and then I would watch shows like Spongebob, Hey Arnold, Cat Dog. Mm -hmm, yep, those were all the ones I watched. I think Angry Beavers at a certain hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny like how you still remember the channel that it was on. For us, it was Channel 53 was Nickelodeon and Channel 54 was Cartoon Network. Yeah, we were different parts of the Bay Area, but we were still Channel 53, Nickelodeon. Well, and then you saw like those kind of more, I guess, risque, I, I guess is the right word for it, cartoons like Cat Dog and... Uh, Ren and Stimpy? Is that the name? I always forget. Yeah, Ren and Stimpy. The thing is, it's because it came out, like, I think 91, when, like, the earliest Nickelodeon cartoons were out, and because it had content that was so not necessarily suitable for the same kids who were watching Rugrats, that it, it faded pretty quickly, and then the only chance you had of seeing it, if you were, like, our age, is if you were, like, searching around the internet, and, I mean, so many people make jokes about stoners watching it and that wasn't necessarily me but I still see how this is weird kind of humor yeah so then they kind of evolved away from that to more child friendly but still with kind of the ability for adults to enjoy it influence like with fairly odd parents and spongebob and even rugrats to some extent I guess kept that trend going like if you do watch it now you can enjoy it and then they started bringing in actual child actors Right, and Nickelodeon, I think, was just trying to, like, copy the same kind of formula Disney Channel had perfected of, we find a teenage kid who can act, sing, and dance, get them their own show, and then promote their music career. Mm-hmm. I think it worked with Nickelodeon to an unexpected degree with Ariana Grande, but then they were trying the same thing earlier with Jamie Lynn Spears and then Victoria Justice. Yeah, I think Zoe 101 was the first big child actor 
show that I remember anyways. I, I think, you know, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the Amanda show, which I did think was really funny. Oh my gosh, yes, the Amanda show. Yes. I am so sorry, Amanda Bynes. I can't believe I forgot her. Yeah, and that gave us Drake and Josh, and then Zoe 101, then iCarly. But I think even before that, it was all that, right? Which was still on when we were watching Nickelodeon. So it almost was like, instead of trying to be Disney Channel, they were almost creating like a Saturday Night Live, but for kids. Yeah, that was the goal. And then it's almost like with each show, it like took one step up in terms of quality and what we were being presented. All that, that gets us Keenan and Cal. Were you a Good Burger fan ever? Oh, I hated the Good Burger. (laughs) Oh, too bad. I thought it was funny. (laughs) Well, you know, you're a dumb boy and I'm a girl. So (laughs) no, I'm kidding. (laughs) You have some intelligence. You're a nurse, for God's sake. (laughs) No, no. Everyone has, you know, their own sense of humor. I really liked Zoe 101 because, you know, it was about a teen girl who was really cool and, like, funny and smart and went to, like, this really ritzy academy that appealed to me as someone from that same kind of demographic, I guess. Yeah, so you could relate to the kids of, what was it called? Pacific Coast Academy? Yeah, I think so. It was in California. It was like on the beach, which looking back, I'm like, damn, that must have been expensive for those parents. Like, how realistic is that really to be at that school when you're like 14 years old? Who's dropping that coin? But yeah, I do remember that one. But more than anything, I remember Drake and Josh. And those guys came from The Amanda Show. Right. Yeah, that is something I think has aged really well. I mean, there's something to be said about their like over the top acting and their like bickering and the fact that Drake was the cool guy who got girls and like played music and Josh was like overly serious and would easily freak out over something. That was such an easy source of conflict. Well, it's fascinating that you got to watch these kids essentially grow up on television, similar to Disney Channel, I guess. But yeah, like just even looking at pictures of them from when they first started on Nickelodeon to what they looked like at the end of like whatever season Drake and Josh ended on. They're like totally different kids. Yeah, and I was so thrilled when I was staying a few days with my friend Cody down in Long Beach and we go past a certain location and he points to it and he's like, you know what that is? And I looked at it for a sec, but I realized it was the high school they shot the exterior shots of Drake and Josh. Oh, that's so cool. That's how etched in my brain it was. I knew as soon as I saw it, like just about. That is one of those shows that shape your humor going forward as an adult. I think it might go back to that idea that when you're really young, there's like a smaller percentage of your life, relatively speaking. So the memories you have at that time are much clearer because that's literally all you've known. And as you get older, things relatively move faster and you don't develop memories in the same way. So those shows are iconic to us because they represented such a large portion of our childhood. Yeah, they were really good at being part of our childhood and kind of influencing the kind of lifestyle styles we wanted maybe like how many people who watch zoe 101 wanted to go to a school like pca or how many people saw iCarly and it's like hey i want to make my own web show or get that kind of attention or thought drake bell was cool for performing his music yeah or like Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide. I was a huge nerd in middle school, and this show was, like, showing me, you're gonna be okay. (laughs) You'll make it through this 
horrible experience of middle school and get out and have a good life. You know, it's not it's not all horrible. And also, back then, you didn't have the internet. You didn't have a, a phone that could connect to the internet, if you even had a phone. So getting home and putting on Nickelodeon, the cartoons or the shows, that was what you did for entertainment. So of course it's going to be really memorable. It was what you were doing every day. Of course. And I mean, just to make a quick note on Ned's Declassified, to this day, I always have my clothes prepared the night before. I'm pretty sure because I saw that as a tip when I was like 10 or 11 in a Ned's Declassified episode. They actually had some good advice. For all the weirdness, good weirdness, I should add. Mm -hmm. I remember watching it and like almost taking mental notes like, okay, gotta remember to do that. That's good advice. Yeah. But I feel like after that, Nickelodeon kind of fell into this phase where they wanted to be the Disney Channel, where there was Victorious, which is based in singing, and they're at like a special school meant for singers, and they have Ariana Grande on it, who eventually became world famous. There were other things like that. Well, what I think is interesting is that was around the age I had kind of aged out of Nickelodeon. I think by the time I was 14 or 15, that was when I effectively was no longer watching programs off of Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, Disney Channel, and was like watching stuff off FX and Comedy Central and maybe VH1. And what I do remember is, yeah, they were moving towards shows like Victorious, or there was sort of that more like Disney Channel focused or towards a different type of younger demographic. And one thing that does stick out in my mind was their version of High School Musical. They really wanted to jump on this was Spectacular, which I don't know if it really reached any particular high i'd say it didn't i'm gonna agree with you there i mean there was big time rush i don't know if you remember that one that one came out i think right around high school for me big time rush was after my time. yeah big time rush school of rock what else have we got oh there was sam and ariana grande uh sam and cat which i think famously they hated each other how long did that go uh one season <laughs> i don't think it went well i think famously they really disliked each other offset but yeah it is interesting to see how they did shift more into the musically focused same exact thing that disney channel was doing to much better effect and then like the only cartoon they're showing is spongebob like back to back to back to back i feel bad for some of the kids of today grown up with content that might not be looked back on as fondly it's so easy to like jump in the trap of like you kids don't know what the real good tv shows were and maybe we're right but then at the same time i feel like a lot of these demographic shifts or the change in their programming i wouldn't even say it's a bad thing it just maybe we just grew up and like we just had different interests and that's not to say that there aren't flaws but each their own that's true and i guess i can speak to this so i was a nanny a couple years ago and it was really interesting to see the difference in how young children are now consuming media there isn't really that experience of getting home from school and tuning into the television on a channel and trying to get a show that you like you know like channel surfing trying to find a cartoon that you really enjoy instead you get home and you turn on your tv and you go to whatever streaming platform your parents parents have subscribed to and you look up children's shows and go from there or you watch movies or you watch YouTube. Yeah, there's no underestimating how powerful YouTube is. 
when scheduled TV watching is no longer a thing and there's so many other things competing for people's attention and when kids are the most valuable types of consumer because of how much free time and eventual disposable income they have. I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, you would turn on the TV, you'd watch your favorite shows and eventually there would come a time when there was nothing good on where you didn't want to watch any of the stuff that was playing so you'd turn off the TV and you... You had to actually do something because everything sucked on TV. Yeah, you'd go do something. You'd go outside or I know I sound so old. I'm like, back when we were kids, we would play outside and blah, blah, blah. Well, no, but I hated it. That's my point. It's like, no, there needs to be good stuff on TV. What's going on? (laughs) But now these kids have the ability to turn on anything at any time. And I think it does influence the kind of life they're having or the the kind of experience they're having growing up. And I'm not going to be here saying like, oh, it's negative or it's positive, but it is very different. I think we should just be grateful that the kind of cartoons and children's entertainment we got to grow up with, however flawed or however far from perfection it may have been, at least we didn't have to grow up in the time when really, really shitty animated programs dominated the airways because Ronald Reagan deregulated TV and you get programs that are just 30 minute toy commercials for like the most stale toys of all time like you know what I mean like the Transformers G.I. Joe's and the He-Man you just brought up a point that I was going to bring up in a more modern context where nowadays kids are going onto YouTube and watching toy channels toy opening videos Logan Paul like all of these other videos that are like specifically made to target them using an algorithm and how none of that is being regulated the way it is now on television where you can have an entire video that's just an ad that's like targeting a very small child and there's no regulation for that on YouTube and there was no regulation like that during the Reagan era. It's almost like history is repeating itself. We were in a bubble where it's like, no, we got the perfect amount where the only entertainment was like, say, what's on live TV. And the result is it's actually good. I mean, hey, everything's a business. They were trying to make money. They're trying to study the psychology of people of our age, like back when we were tweens. But like, at least the stuff we got was not half bad. And like, we could show it to younger generations right now and hope they'd like it. Yeah, I think we grew up in a really unique time period where we were watching shows that were on networks that were being regulated to protect us from advertisers and kids nowadays aren't. It's kind of fascinating. So all this is to say, with the internet, with children's TV programming, we're both super old. We've established that. We're really old. Please don't judge our old opinions. And we're going to see in 10 to 20 years whether we were right or not about the younger generations, like, having it bad. Why do old people always have to ruin the fun? Thank you, Alyssa, for coming back and helping me Frankenstein a listenable podcast. Share your thoughts by messaging me on my Anchor profile, which I've linked to in the show notes. I'll be back real soon with a podcast episode that actually goes according to plan. To top this off, I will, in the name of fair use, treat you to a clip of my cousin-in-law acting opposite Miranda Cosgrove in an episode of iCarly. You have nice eyes. They say the eyes are the windows to the soul. Man, as a point, see you next time.